Life podcast. We truly hope you'll be inspired and challenged today. Now, let's dive into this message with the family at Pleasant Ridge. If you're just joining with us, we, we've been looking through uh, some selected psalms that have to do with thanksgiving. And um, so far, we've looked at uh, three of them. We already looked at uh, Psalm 34, and we saw God's goodness and uh, uh, the things that He has uh, done for us. Um, We saw that there's no God like our God, as uh, David prays of a prayer of thanksgiving. And uh, we saw that in Psalm 86. And last week, uh, we contemplated... Uh, how we are to be giving thanks to the Lord uh, in Psalm 92, because He alone is worthy of our worship. And this week, we're going to consider what uh, Psalm 111 teaches us about giving thanks to the Lord with our whole heart. So let's, uh, let's read this uh, together here. You can follow along uh, if you don't have a Bible. Uh, Word of God says, verse number one, praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart in the company of the upright in the congregation. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. Full of splendor, majesty is his work. And his righteousness endures forever. He has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. He provides food for those who fear him. He remembers his covenant forever. He has shown his people the power of his works in giving them the inheritance of the nations. The works of his hands are faithful and just. All his precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. He sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. Now, this psalm here is another acrostic psalm. We uh, considered another psalm that was an acrostic. If you don't remember what the acrostic uh, is, it's basically each phrase begins with a certain letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And so it goes in progression. And the way that the psalmist did this and the way that they wrote these acrostic psalms, it was to help them remember the psalm so that they could give praise, and so they can recall it and recite it. Now, in English, we might say something uh, to, the, to the effect of, you know, something is complete from A to what? Z, right? And that's exactly what the psalmist is doing here in these verses. He's saying we need to give praise and glory and thanksgiving to God because he is complete from A to Z. Now, there's not really A and Z in the Hebrew alphabet, right? But he's saying God is complete. Uh, we can praise him for everything from A 
2Z. Now, this psalm is really neat because you can't help but see the magnitude of the overflowing of praise that the psalmist gives from his lips. But what's interesting, it's not just coming from his lips. If you notice in verse 1, what is he doing? He's saying, I'm giving it with my whole heart. It's heartfelt. It's coming from his heart. It's heartfelt praise and thanksgiving to the Lord. Now, this psalm only consists of 10 verses, but the core of it is really found in verses 2 through 9, because if you notice how many times the psalmist talks about the works of the Lord, and he says, this is what God does. This is what he has done. This is what he's doing. This is what God has shown us through his works, right? And so all of his praise is coming from what God has done. And so he tells us the psalmist pours out his thanksgiving to God whose works are great, they're glorious, and they're majestic. Now, when reading through this psalm, I get a picture of God in all of his powerful works. You see it. I see God as a strong God, a capable God. But he's also gracious and compassionate, as what the psalmist says in verse number four. And not just strong and powerful, but he's also good. And not just good, but he's actually invested in us. God's not just sitting off on the sidelines somewhere and just watching things take place and happening. No, God is invested in his creation. God is actually moving, and he's actually participating in what is happening. And so God is deeply invested in our lives. He's active. In fact, the whole psalm is about his works, his deeds, things he does. He's a glorious, gracious, active God. He's just and dependable as what the psalmist says in verse number six. And he's decisive. His deeds are forever as what the psalmist says in verse number three, verse number five, and verse number nine. He does them in public for all to see. That's what he says in verse number six. And there's just no end to all of his righteousness at all. He rescues us and redeems us and renews us in true freedom. That's the kind of God the psalmist wants us to be thanking. That's the kind of thanks the psalmist is, is really trying to, to direct us towards, that our hearts would be thanking a God who does all of these things. When we gather as a congregation, do we give thanks? Oh, I, I think that we do in the sense that it's on our lips. But what about in our hearts? You see, I think one of the, the greatest dangers in all of Christianity is what Jesus said, they honor me with their what? Their lips. But their heart is where? Far from me. And so I think it's very important that, that everything that we do, our worship, our thanksgiving, is all heartfelt. It's centered around our hearts, really what we believe and what we think about. I think that for so many followers of Jesus, a gathering on Sunday can just become really routine religion. We come, we sing some songs. We say some prayers, we give some testimonies, we listen to a boring sermon, right? Then we go home. Yeah, you can say amen, that's fine. 
but is it really heartfelt? Right? I mean, that's what I think is so important for us to, to remember is that God is always after our hearts. Not just what we say, not just what we do. Where is our heart in relation to thanksgiving to our God? And so this morning, I just want to encourage you, based on Psalm 111, verse number 1, to engage in worship and thanksgiving with your whole heart. And so this is what I want you to take away with you today. Learn how to give thanks with your whole heart. So let's take a look at a couple things here. I have two points here that I believe that we can gather here from what the psalmist gives us out of, out of these 10 verses. First of all, if we are going to learn how to give thanks with our whole heart, we need to answer the question of why first. Why should we give thanks with our whole heart? Now, on the basis of this, this seems kind of elementary, right? Well, duh, Mike, of course we should be giving thanks with our whole heart because of who God is. And I think that we kind of know that, but I assure you, God has to remind us constantly of why we are to be giving thanks to him. I mean, if we actually did this, God wouldn't have to remind us to do this. And so he constantly reminds us of who he is, what he has done, what he is doing, so that our praise and thanksgiving will be directed towards him. Why is it that we need to be reminded? Well, because we are by default ungrateful and selfish people. Just look at the examples woven all throughout Scripture. Why is it that we have to teach our children to be thankful and unselfish? What do you say? Thank you. (laughs) We have to constantly be reminded of that. Even as adults, we are still unthankful and selfish. But I think this psalm makes it abundantly clear. It's not just about saying it with your lips, but having it ingrained in our heart. It's heartfelt thanksgiving to God. Why should we give God our wholehearted thanks? Why does he deserve it? Why is it good for us to give it? Well, the 111th Psalm, I believe, mentions us four reasons for this. Here they are. First of all, he sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. Verse number 9. On top of everything else, before anything we might say, is this blessing, this great and immeasurable gift, he sent redemption. If there is anything at all that we should always be constantly thanking God for, is redemption. Always. Do you deserve redemption? Do I deserve redemption? Nope. But our God who is great, our God who is merciful, our God who is gracious, our God is, who is awesome and holy, sent redemption. And our hearts should be directed with heartfelt thanksgiving to God for redemption. And I think we know that, don't we? I believe the psalmist could have been thinking about Here, the Exodus possibly, or maybe even God's protection of Judah against the Assyrians, or maybe really the return from exile in Babylon, that God sent redemption to his people. But all of those were really only temporary, right? 
The eternal redemption is not the rescue of the Hebrews from Egypt to escape slavery to Pharaoh, but the rescue of Jews and Gentiles like us from the dominion of darkness to escape slavery to sin. Colossians 1, 13-14 reminds us, He has rescued us from the power of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. For us who know Christ as our Savior, we know about this great redemption, don't we? We have experienced Jesus becoming our sacrifice for our sins. Right? We've, we, we've come into communion with the Holy God through Jesus Christ. And so we've, we've experienced this. We know about this. I'm sure the psalmist is thinking here of the exile where the Jews were taken from Israel, taken into captivity. Um, but we too, though, know about the greater return from the greater exile, don't we? That God has called us from darkness. He's brought us out of darkness, and he's brought us into light. God has done that. And this is something that we should be thankful for, that he sent redemption to us. Once we were far from God and dead in sin, but in Jesus Christ we've been made alive and brought near to God again. I think many times we read about God's works and they seem kind of disconnected from us, right? Like we read about them in the Bible, we, we hear stories about them, and, and we're like, well, you know, that, that was kind of like a long time ago and it's kind of disconnected from us. But the things that God has done and is doing affect us and will affect us and all of humanity for all of eternity. This is something that we ought to be thankful for. It may have happened at Calvary, but it happened to you and to me. And so to an undeserving and an ungodly mess, the Father sent redemption to us. We who deserve the wrath of God, what did God do? He sent Jesus to take our place. The wrath of God was placed upon Jesus. Jesus bore our sin debt. Jesus bore the guilt that we so rightfully deserve. And Jesus was crucified. Jesus died in place for us. And so God sent redemption to us. And so we live this redemption it's how we became his people, and so we should be thankful for his redemption. Here's a second thing that I believe that comes out of this psalm. He provides food for those who fear him. Now, we should give God our wholehearted thanks because he provides food for those who fear him. Now, I think this is true in so many ways, right? Like, I think just this past week, right, all of us partook in the thanksgiving, right? Like, we... we, we took part in this, this age-old tradition, right? The, the first Thanksgiving, here's the, here's the pilgrims, and they're there, and they're, they're, they're facing famine, and God abundantly supplies food for them. I mean, they're, they're on the brink of death. God supplies food, and it reminds them to be thankful Right, the, the, the neighboring uh, natives there, they share their bounty with these pilgrims. And so we remember, yeah, God has done this. God provides food. God gives an abundance of food. Right? 
And so we're thankful for that. Don't fall for the trap that there's not enough food for everybody, okay? Don't fall for the trap. We need to start eating bugs and fake meat, okay? There's plenty of food, okay? So God provides food. I mean, maybe you even had some tasty stuff this past Thanksgiving. My mother-in-law, she made the best roast I have ever had in my entire life. It was so delicious. In fact, I told her, I said, Terry, I said, if I was on death row, I would want this meal for my last meal. I mean, it was so good. It was so delicious, in fact, that the next morning, I made an eggle, an eggle, an egg, a cheese, roast beef bagel sandwich. Man, it was so good. It was delicious. It was great. And we thank God for that delicious food, don't we? But I think that there's more to this than just food in general. God feeds us. We are fed really in two ways. We are fed through his holy word and by his life. As we feed on the word of God, we are strengthened and we're renewed. Jesus reminded us that man is not to live by bread alone, but by what? Every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. This is why scripture is so important. This is why scripture is, is, it needs to be centered in our lives. This is why it matters that we don't get fed through, through deception of people who try to portray Jesus for what he's really not. Maybe they're adding to Scripture, or they're, they're twisting Scripture, or they're taking away from Scripture, right? This is why we don't get caught up in, in Hollywood's depiction of what they think Jesus did, or what Jesus said, or what he didn't say. Or, it's so important that we feed on Scripture. Scripture alone is sufficient. We don't need anything else. We have scripture. And so we have scripture. And so we should be thankful for God's word that feeds us. His word is eternal. It's living. It's active. It will never pass away. We're reminded in Romans 10, 17, that faith comes by hearing what? The word of God. You want your faith to be strengthened? Then feed on scripture. You want to walk by faith? Feed on Scripture. That's the only thing that you got. We are also fed by the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus. After feeding the crowd of 5,000 with just five loaves and two fishes, Jesus said this to the grumbling Jews that were about. Okay, Listen to what Jesus said in John chapter 6, verses 47 through 58. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man 
and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him as the living Father sent me. And I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the true bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Now those statements seem kind of strange, don't they? Jesus telling us that we need to eat his flesh and drink his blood. What are we, vampires? I want to drink your blood. Right? No. Jesus is not advocating that we're over there nibbling on his flesh and drinking his blood here. Okay? John chapter 6 is such an awesome, awesome passage about eternal life and what Jesus does. I don't have all the time to explain this, but I encourage you to study it out for yourself here, okay? But let me give you here just really kind of the, the essential part of this, all right? Here is the point. Our greatest need is not physical food and drink. That's exactly what these Jews were doing, right? He feeds the, the, the whole company, right? 5,000 people with just a, a, a few loaves and a few fish, right? But he's trying to explain to him, your greatest need is not physical blood or physical food and physical drink, right? Our greatest need is what? Salvation. Our greatest need is to have Jesus, who is eternal life. And so we draw our life from Christ who is eternal and to partake in his eternal life is to have eternal life. To have Christ is to have eternal life. If you don't have Christ, guess what? You don't have eternal life. Plain and simple. It doesn't matter how many times you go to church. It doesn't matter if you've been baptized. It doesn't matter if you can say uh, 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 confessional things. It doesn't matter one bit. Without Christ, you do not have eternal life. And that's it. And so we draw our life from Christ, of those who know Christ. I mean, this all goes together, right? John chapter 15, I am the vine, you are the what? The branches. Without me, you can do what? Nothing, right? We draw our life from Christ. He is the root. If you don't have the root, you have what? No fruit. And so we draw our life from Christ. He is our life. And I believe this is what Paul says in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And so if you know Christ, you have the awesome privilege of having and being able to feast on the bread of heaven that has been given for you. And you can feast on that bread and drink from the well as often as you want to because it never runs empty because Christ is eternal. And so this is something that I believe we should be thankful for because God feeds us. Thirdly, we should give thanks with a whole heart because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All who practice it have a good understanding. 
God redeemed us. God gives us what we need to sustain our bodies and souls for the journey we're on. And now the psalmist here reminds us that God gives us wisdom. He doesn't just set us loose to navigate all of life's difficulties and hardships in life. We can have wisdom. Did you know that there are actually two kinds of wisdom? There is a heavenly wisdom, and there is an earthly wisdom. The wisdom is what the book of James defines for us as heavenly wisdom. Heavenly wisdom he defines as being pure, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits. It's impartial, it's sincere. But then he contrasts that and tells us what earthly wisdom is like. He says earthly wisdom is unspiritual and demonic. Earthly wisdom breeds jealousy, selfish ambition, disorder, and vile practices. True wisdom, as what the psalmist describes here, is that wisdom that only comes down from God. And it really is what, the, the, uh, what we're reminded about in James, that if we lack wisdom, we can ask of God, and he will give abundantly to those that ask him. And so we should be thankful for wisdom. Here's the fourth thing. We should give thanks with a whole heart because God has shown his people the power of his works in giving them the heritage of the nations. Now, this is so good to remember here. Okay? The psalmist here is talking about the nation of Israel here. Okay? Now, do not make the mistake of saying that the church has replaced Israel. It has not. Okay? God has brought the two together as one people, right? We're constantly reminded of that in the, in the New Testament, okay? The, we, the Jews, the, we, the Gentiles, have been grafted in, right? Okay? The psalmist here is talking about the nation of Israel. God has given the nation of Israel what? A nation, right? Remember, this all goes all the way back to the Old Testament with Abraham. Abraham, he calls him out of the, the land of the, the Chaldees, right? Abraham, he's a, he's, a, uh, he's a pagan. And he says, Abraham, come follow me. I'm going to make you a great mighty nation, right? The blessing gets passed down through all this. God takes them. We fast forward. They come out of Egypt. They go into the land of Canaan. And God gives them what? The land of Canaan. They go in there. They fight uh, all those guys, right? They fight the... Uh, uh, the uh, the people at the, uh, uh, boy, I'm having a brain freeze here now, right? This is terrible. Uh, but they fight all these guys, right? You can go through, you can go read it all about it, okay? So they go through all this stuff, right? Whole book of Joshua, okay? They fight all these guys. God gives them the land, right? And he says, here, this is yours, this is yours. He drives out all the inhabitants of the land, and so he's talking about all of this. He brings them out of Egypt. The power of God's works are evident to others. Now make the spiritual connection here, okay? The church is not Israel, but I want you to make the spiritual connection here. Notice what he says here. He says he has shown his people the power of his works in giving him the heritage of the nations. Why has God redeemed us? Why did God save us? Why did God take us out of the bondage and slavery of sin? Why did he do that? 
so that his works would be evident in our life. God redeemed us as a people that his wonderful works such as grace, mercy, forgiveness would be seen and evidence in our lives as we live holy lives for him. We're reminded of what 1 Peter 2, 9 through 10 says. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous lights. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And so God does all of this in our lives so that his works may be evidenced in our lives. And so this is something that we should have heartfelt thanks to the Lord for. So if we're not meditating on these things, I believe that thanks may be on our lips, but it's really not in our heart. So now we got to really ask the question, well then, how in the world do we actually give thanks with our whole heart? That leads us to the second point here. How are we to give thanks with a whole heart? Okay? I believe the psalmist gives us four ways in how to give thanks with our whole heart. Here they are. First of all, study the works of God. Verse number two. The works of the Lord are studied by all who delight in them. If we delight in any of these things he's done for us, we should study them. That's not something we say or do often, though, is it? We need to be studying who God is, learning more about him. Did you know that studying is really a form of thankfulness? It is. It's right there in the passage. If we want to have heartfelt thanks, then we need to be studying who God is as revealed in the Word. As I've said before, our theology, what we believe about God, who He is, what He does, always affects our philosophy, how we live our life. And so if we really don't know that much about the God of the Bible, then our lives are going to be evidenced of that. And so we need to be studying who God is if we want to have a heart of thanks towards him. You have to study God for yourself. Do you only believe what you are told about God? Do you only rely on your traditions or what you were brought up in? You have to study God for yourself. And so don't just take this surface level of acceptance of who God what. Of, of who God is and what he has done, really dig into it. Really see what scripture has to say about who God is. Here's the second thing. Pledge your heart and praise him in the congregation. Verse number one, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart in the company of the upright in the congregation. Thanksgiving is really not a small thing and it's also not a private thing. Notice what the psalmist says here. Notice what he doesn't say. Give thanks with your whole heart in a vacant parking lot. Give thanks to the Lord while you're alone in the kitchen. Now, I'm not saying that you can't give praise and thanksgiving to God in a vacant parking lot or home alone in your kitchen. But what I believe what the psalmist is trying to help us understand is that our praise and our thanksgiving affects all that are around us. 
And so that's why it's so important that when we gather as a congregation, that we are giving praise and thanksgiving in front of the whole congregation. Now, I think this is also a warning here as well, because we got, we got to understand this, okay, that we do not do this for eye service of others, right? Because if we do that, okay, God knows the difference, right? And it's what Jesus said. He said, they will have their reward. What? Oh, wow, did you hear that? Oh, man, isn't that amazing? Right? No. If that's your reward. That's all you get, okay? So make sure it's coming from the heart. And, and follow the psalmist pledge. I will give thanks and praise him in the congregation. Here's the third key. Be imitators of God. Ephesians 5, 1 through 2 reminds us, be imitators of God as beloved children and live in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Now, we don't see this actual point in the psalm. However, I think there's enough evidence here to support this. Why? Because here's the psalmist. He's giving heartfelt praise and thanksgiving to the Lord. Well, how did he get that? He has been studying who God is. Okay? What we study, this is, this is so awesome, okay? Think about this. Why do our children act a certain way in our families? Because that's how you act. They study you. They watch you. They listen to you. And they say, oh, that's how mom and dad do it. So I'm going to do it that way. If you're over there sitting at the table and you're like, I don't like meatloaf, Blech. Guess what? Your kids are going to go, I don't like meatloaf. That's what they do. They copy us. So what are we supposed to be doing? Being an imitator of God. Okay? Here's the psalmist giving heartfelt thanks to the Lord. He's imitating what God is like. And so I believe that as we study who God is, we will reflect God's character. The psalmist knows that God is gracious and compassionate, Psalm 111, verse number 4. In fact, the psalmist is pulling this phrase that's often quoted out of, out of Exodus 34, 6, the Lord, the Lord God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. One way we can give thanks with our whole heart is not only by thanking God for being gracious, but then we ourselves to be what? Gracious. Psalm 103 reminds us the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great are his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. We can thank God with our lips for his compassion to us, but if we really want it to be heartfelt, then we in turn need to be gracious to others. We need to be compassionate towards others. If God is always faithful to his covenant, is what he says in Psalm 111, verse number 5, we can be faithful to him. If God provides food for us, we can share that food with others, whether it's the food in our homes, inviting others over for hospitality, or sharing the word of God with others. You see, we are imitating who God is. This is a way of thankfulness towards him. If God is just and trustworthy, if God is steadfast and upright, is what he says in Psalm 111, verse 7 and 8, we should reflect that as well. 
In Matthew 5.45, Jesus reminds us that the Father makes the Son to rise on the wicked and the good, who sends soothing rain on the just and on the unjust. And we are reminded in 1 Thessalonians 5.18, always seek to do good to one another and to all. Do good to all. Can I ask you, do we actually really do good to all? Or is it just the people that we get along with and like? See, this is, this is a form of thankfulness, actually living this out, imitating who God is in front of others. You know, I can guarantee you that how we live our lives, how we treat others is a good reflection of what we believe about who God is and what he has done for us. God has forgiven us of of insurmountable things, but do we extend forgiveness towards others? God is gracious and compassionate towards us. Do we live that out towards others? I I guarantee you, I can give God, I I have... So many reasons, so many reasons for God not to love me. So many. And I've given him countless reasons not to love me. But what does God do? He loves me still. He loves you still. And so our thankfulness should be heartfelt by imitating this God that we serve. Here's the last thing. Lastly, we can give wholehearted thanks by allowing eternity to teach us. Now, don't miss this. We fail in our lives to be thankful because we don't have eternity in our perspective. The only things we see are the temporary and the present. That's all we can ever see a lot of times. But we are told to set our minds on things above, not on things on the earth in Colossians 3.2. We are told over and over that the just are to live by what? Faith. Remind about that in Habakkuk 2, verses 2 through 4, Romans 1.17, Galatians 3.11, and Hebrews 10.38. And all of, in, in, there in Hebrews, it's followed by what is known as the great faith chapter of all these men and women who lived a life of faith. They had eternity in their perspective. And we are called to live the same way. I love the way the writer of Hebrews sums up chapter 12 with this charge. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. The God we're thinking is a God of forever. Everything he does is eternal. Everything. It all has eternal effects. Okay? And so this is the God that we're thanking. Notice what the psalm, how the references to eternity, Psalm 111.3, his righteousness endures forever. He is forever mindful of his covenant in verse number five. He has commanded his covenant forever in verse number nine. And so this isn't a God who changes his mind. He's not wishy-washy. He's not like, well, you know, I think I'm going to change. You know, I, that happened. I kind of need, no, that, Our God is a God of forever. He's eternal. And so our focus should be on eternity, always in our minds. This is a God whose actions are forever. 
This isn't a God who patches up our broken souls with duct tape and Elmer's glue. Okay? He's a forever God. The things that he does has eternal impact. And so God will always stay the same. Your redemption will never come unglued because you stumble and fall. The feast of God's word will never leave your belly empty. God's wisdom may send you down some, some rocky terrain. And it might be all twisty and, and, and hard and difficult. But his wisdom will never fail. He will always get you exactly where you need to be in life. God is a forever God. Psalmist says all of this praise, and I love this, God alone, as what the, the psalmist says in verse number 10, to God alone belongs eternal praise. Not praise that's for sunny days and clear skies, not praise with an expiration date, not praise that comes and goes with the setting of the sun. It's eternal praise. And so this is a God that we should be thankful to. And so we can give God praise and thanksgiving no matter what may come in our lives. So are we giving God thankful praise with our whole heart? Or is it just on our lips? Let's follow what the psalmist does here. Let's study God. Let's be consumed with him. And may we live our lives in praise and thanksgiving for who he is. Let's pray together. If you're interested in more information about our church or knowing the peace that Jesus gives, visit our website at lifeattheridge.church.